Welcome to the Progressive Threat to the American Republic, an American Family Radio special broadcast. I'm Abraham Hamilton III, General Counsel and Public Policy Analyst for the American Family Association. And for the next half hour, AFA Vice President Ed Vitagliano and I will discuss the growing threat of progressivism in our society. Ed has written, in my opinion, one of the most important resources you could have. It is a booklet titled The Progressive Threat to the American Republic. Now, Ed, how would you define progressivism or how should it be defined? When we say secular progressivism, both of those words are important. So I think all of us are in favor of progress when it comes to medical knowledge or Mm. technology in terms of helping to make our lives better, to make um, maybe the practice of surgery, for example, more efficient, which is part of the reason why it's tricky when you start criticizing or critiquing progressivism. People will say you're against progress. No, Mm. it is the fact that secular progressivism looks at man as being the apex of life on this planet. There is no God, or if there is a God, we don't have to pay any attention to him. Man decides what is right and what is wrong. Man decides what rights we have. Man is in charge of his own destiny so that progress is purely a matter of people getting the answers right. And for those who come from a Judeo-Christian worldview, that is the complete polar opposite of what we believe. We believe that whatever men and women create on earth, we are answerable to God. And whatever we do with the governments that we fashion, for example, however we use medical knowledge, however we use quote-unquote progress, we are answerable to God. And that latter explanation, that Judeo-Christian worldview, is the one that informed our founding fathers and secular progressives, even though we haven't defined historically what that means, secular progressives understood that that's what the foundation of this country was and they changed it Mm. on purpose and without asking the rest of us whether it should be done. I feel that the progressive party should appeal peculiarly to the young men who are to be the next generation of voters. The principles for which we stand are the principles of fair play and a square deal for every man and every woman in the United States. A lot of people, when they hear the word progressive, think we're dealing with something recent. So we call liberals progressives now. So people think, well, progressives, that means just from the 60s, right? No. The progressive movement historically was birthed in the time period 1880 to 1920, thereabouts. Mm -hmm. As a political movement, these were individuals who believed in Darwinian evolution. Mm -hmm. They did not like the religious underpinnings of our country. They went to Europe to find out what the current thinking was. And they came back to this country and began magazines, think tanks. They began going into colleges, universities, seminaries, law schools. And this movement was very influential, but publicly collapsed in the wake of World War I because people saw the nature of mankind and the way science was being used, the invention of machine guns and tanks and poison gas, and this is the way it was used. But behind the scenes, 
it grew stronger and stronger and stronger, taking over the institutions of this country. Mm. And so would you say that was a part of the mechanism for progressives being keenly aware of what America's foundations were, yet taking aim at them to transform them into something else? Absolutely. This is the thing that a lot of people don't understand about the, the origins, the historical origins of the progressive movement is they understood that the founders believed, for example, as it says in the Declaration of Independence, that our unalienable rights come from our creator. They knew that was a foundational principle. Natural law was a foundation of our legal system, and they despised it. They ridiculed it, and they began to take over the major institutions. So people may say, for example, by mid-century or by you know uh, 1947, uh, first uh, uh, case involving the Supreme Court and religion, and then, of course, the Bible decision and the prayer ruling— How did that happen? Well, it happened because in the earlier parts of the 1900s, progressives started taking over law schools, producing lawyers who Mm. would become judges, who would become Supreme Court justices, Mm -hmm. who then began ruling in ways that had no precedent. Why did it have no precedent? Because they were creating something new. So, for example, they were so wildly successful in taking over law schools that Uh, By the end of the 1920s, Roscoe Pound, who was the dean of Harvard Law School, Mm -hmm. he was able to say with confidence, he said, quote, the cycle is complete. We are back to the governing state as the unchallengeable authority behind legal precepts. He said, this is striking. Roscoe Pound, dean of Harvard Law School, he said, the state takes the place of Jehovah, handing the tablets of the law to Moses. Wow. And we begin to see by mid-century the results in terms of Supreme Court rulings. Mm. And I've said this many times, and every time I say this, people get shocked when they hear me say it. Uh, but as a, a, an attorney, having gone to law school, that you don't study the Constitution. You spend all of your time studying the opinions issued by justices in previous courts, and you get taught the skill of trying to predict how a judge may come down on the issue, but we never actually read the text of the Constitution, never read the articles, never read the amendments. We spend all of our time there, and it's the concept of legal positivism, which is really Darwinian evolution applied to the legal system in America. Right. And and most of us think that our legal system is based on the Constitution. Well, not only did secular progressives get rid of the Declaration of Independence. Woodrow Wilson, in fact, said there are still people who hold to the Declaration of Independence. They considered that to be the old regime, and they were fashioning something uh, that was based on the wisdom of human beings who were experts in their field. For example, political science comes from studying politics as a science. (laughs) Because they believe you could become expert enough in any field to where the experts would tell the rest of us what is right and what is true and how we should live. So political science as a discipline arose in the late 1800s out of the secular progressive movement. When you think politics, is that really a science? Well, if you believe that experts should be in charge, which is what secular progressives believe— then you would believe, yes, you can study politics as a science. This is why we we hear from, uh, even, in, even in our age, in our time, well past the 1920s and so on and so forth, where people will say, well, 
we need to tell parents how they can raise their kids, whether they should be allowed to, to spank, how their nutrition should go. All this is the result of this mindset. Parents, you're not experts. We'll go to Dr. So-and-so from the University of such-and-such. They'll tell you what the right way is to raise your kids. You see this idea all through the secular left. Mm. They'll find the experts. They'll tell you. Forget your morality. Forget your priests and your pastors and your ministers. We'll tell your kids how they should conduct themselves sexually. Parents, you're on the outside looking in. Wow. Overnight mayhem on campus. The University of California, Berkeley, erupting in flames as over a thousand came out to protest. Earlier, they brought out a huge paper mache Trump head and they set it on fire. We will not tolerate racism or sexism or hate crimes and violence. He's a fascist. When we see this, and and you do a great job of explaining this, uh, this concept of progressivism and one of the things that that progressives have become deft at is the nomenclature you know taking advantage of the verbiage but you distinguish progressives from the classical liberal uh how do you make that distinction well i think the the classical liberal position by and large accepted the ideas of the founding fathers that all of our rights come from our creator And the classical liberal believed in freedom and ever-expanding ways of trying to figure out how we can make men and women the most free. Mm. Liberal, liberality, we Mm. we understand that if you're in a a church, being liberal uh, in terms of giving, for Mm -hmm. example, is to be free. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so the classical liberal versus conservative uh, political battles were over... Where are the new places we can go to to make men and women increasingly free? Conservatives would say, okay, you're going too far. We need to remember tradition. We need to remember all those. Those were the battles, by and large. There were battles over the size of government and the size Mm -hmm. of military spending and those kind of things. But the difference between classical liberals and secular progressives is in this idea of uh, God being out and man deciding what is right and what is wrong. Mm. So you have this rejection of the Declaration of Independence because the founders never intended for the Constitution to be interpreted as separate from the Declaration. Right. You know, the Declaration was supposed to be like the overarching framing principles that would be executed, if you will, through the means of the Constitution. Uh, but we have that bifurcation that has happened. And, I mean, when is the last time you heard of a, a legal argument citing the Declaration of Independence? I mean, you don't right. hear that at all. And we've also heard about threats to our religious liberty and things of that nature. Has progressivism been one of the primary ideological vehicles for presenting those threats to the religious liberty in modern America? Oh, absolutely. Your point about the, making an argument using the Declaration of Independence, I don't know if people know this or not. I hope I hope our people have read enough history to understand this. That was the basis upon which Abraham Lincoln prosecuted the Civil War. That's right. In turn, his views on slavery were driven by the Declaration of Independence mm. and this idea that all human beings have these unalienable rights given to us by our Creator. Mm. So those were the kinds of ideas that were commonplace and were understood. Uh, And if you wanted to be in favor of slavery, 
uh, like some like John Calhoun were, you had to go against the Declaration of Independence. So I think that the threats to religious liberty are absolutely driven by this ideology that God is not important to our discussion. And they couch it now in terms, this is the irony of it, uh, the evil irony, I would say, is that they couch it in terms of liberty. We need to protect the liberty of those who might not believe or who might have a different religious belief than the Judeo-Christian worldview. They couch it in those terms, but they ignore the arguments of our founders. For example, George Washington, who said that morality and religion were indispensable supports for political prosperity. Yes, yeah, the farewell address. Farewell address. And he, his argument was that if you do not have religion and morality underneath the political system, then the people are not restrained internally. That's right. The freer a people are, the more they have to be restrained to do good than otherwise. So the less restrained the people are by religion and morality, the more government you have to have. That's true. The more laws you have to have. And, and, and our founders understood that. And to attack those foundations, Washington said, he said, you can't call yourself a patriot <laughs> if you work to subvert religion and morality. And so I would argue that secular progressives are not patriotic. They mm. claim to be looking out for everyone else. What they're doing is they're subverting the whole political system. If you look over the last 40, 50, 60 years, what do we see? The further we have gotten away from God, and the idea of natural rights coming from God and the rightness of our Judeo-Christian foundations, the further we have gotten from that, has our country gotten stronger or is it decayed? Mm. I think the answer is self-evident, yeah. and we'll use self-evident because that's right out of the Declaration of mm. Independence. That is so good, and you, you said rightly, George Washington pointed it out, John Adams, our second president of the United States, said that our constitutional republic was only, only useful for a religious and moral people. When right. he said religious, he was referring to Christianity. Right. And, and he then goes and says that it's wholly inadequate for the governance of anybody else. So in order to enjoy the type of liberties that we have, there must be a prevalence of self-restraint that would flow from understanding that our rights don't come from man, they come from God. Government at its highest efficacy protects those rights that we get from the Lord. A study has shown that about half of millennials believe Americans would be better off living under socialism or communism than under capitalism. The study also 51 percent of college students surveyed said it would be okay to shout down a controversial speaker on campus so that no one else can hear him. The number is even higher. Just 36 percent of millennials said they have a quote very unfavorable opinion of communist ideology when they were asked the question. In a recent survey, nearly one in five college students said it would be okay to use violence to prevent a speaker from delivering a message. Another George Barnett's uh, organization, the American Culture and Faith Institute, just published a new study that shows that 40% of American adults claim they prefer socialism to capitalism. How do we get to this place where you have this, I mean, George Barna, famed Christian researcher, I think he's a pretty good researcher. Right. To where you ha we're at a place in American history just so soon after Ronald Reagan's Mr. Gorbachev tear down that wall. Now we have 40 percent of American adults preferring socialism to capitalism. Well, I would say this, that secular progressives have been so successful in capturing the major centers of power in our country. We're talking to some extent 
the public school system. I, I would argue there are still good public school systems and good public school teachers. I want to make that point clear. Um, but much of it is being captured because of textbooks, so on and so forth. Universities and colleges, so on, have been so successful in taking over those areas of power, the media, what have you, uh, that they have completely, I don't say brainwash. Brainwash is a harsh term. I would say they have taught more and more people in this country a lie, and people have believed that lie. So let me go back and kind of demonstrate the case that secular progressives made. Now, I'm going to go back and mention two people in the uh, early late 1800s and the early 1900s. One was John Burgess. Now, he was a law professor at Columbia University. He was actually a pioneer in the dis- discipline of political science that I mentioned uh, in the United States. Now, he wrote in 1890, now, this is the mentality. The mentality is that the state is the vehicle for perfecting human beings. So this is what he said. The purpose of the state was, quote, the perfection of humanity, the civilization of the world, the perfect development of the human reason and its attainment to universal command over individualism. Okay, now that is one of the founders of the discipline of political science who's saying the state is the one that can perfect humanity. You go all the way back to John Dewey and and these others said how the individuals, how are they created? They are not created with a human nature. They argued there is no human nature. They are fashioned by the state. The state makes people what they are. Now that's the first quote. The second one's from Charles Merriam. He was a professor of political science at the University of Chicago. He was also uh, an advisor to several U.S. presidents, including FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Now, he wrote in 1903, talking about this perfection of humanity coming through experts who filled the state, he said that this perfection of mankind awaited the coming of the universal state. He said this, quote, This end, the perfection of humanity, can be realized, however, only when a world state is organized and for this, mankind is not yet ready. Now, when I was doing some research, I actually got a copy of his book. Uh, it was available in a PDF form online. I started reading Charles Merriam. I was shocked by the boldness with which he made that statement. The perfection of humanity can only come through a one-world state, a one-world government. And he said, mankind's not ready for that. So when I look at the globalist push, Mm. the globalists hate nationalism because nationalism stops them from gaining control over the whole world under one government framework. That's why they hate this make America great again or Mm. this idea that America is somehow special or that France should be for the French people. Mm -hmm. Okay, they believe that the experts... In order to bring about world peace, you have to have a one-world government. So when you talk about socialism and communist ideals, this is all what these people believe. Secular progressives believe in the state. And when the state has absolute power, because it's run by these smart experts, that's when we can begin to fashion 
human beings the way we think they should be fashioned. Tom Nichols, author of the book, The Death of Expertise, shares his humble opinion on the demise of experts. How is it that people now not only doubt expert advice, but believe themselves to be as smart or even smarter than experienced professionals? And unless we start accepting the limitations of our own knowledge, then each of us is failing in our obligation to participate in our democracy as involved but informed citizens. There's a study that was just published by the National Association of Scholars that was, uh, the, the study was conducted by Professor Mitchell Langbert evaluating, surveying 51 of the top 60 universities that are listed in the U.S. News and World Report publication. Many of our families, I did it when I was going to college, we looked through that to see where the rankings of the schools were. And remarkably, Professor Langbert concluded, based on empirical investigation, that there was a 10 to 1 ratio of Democrat professors in those 51 schools. And then when you take the two military academies out, West Point and the Naval Academy, that the ratio of Democrat professors to Republicans goes all the way up to 12.7 to 1. You know, he even showed 40 percent of those top 51 schools don't even have any Republicans on staff. Is that an example of what you're talking about, a certain ideology kind of gaining the power, gaining control of the levers of influence in our society in order to churn out a, a certain um, willingness to embrace certain ideologies? Absolutely. And that study, as well as others in the past, also make the point that if you look at particular disciplines in the university or college system, if you take math out of the equation, exactly for example, right. you take <laughs> biology out of the mix, if you only look at the humanities, if you only humanities, look, communications, religion, it goes. It's even it skyrockets. It skyrockets. It is uh, you know in, in in some cases seventy or eighty to one, and so yes, this is ideologically driven. This movement because they believe this is why you have this antagonism on college campuses to anything related to religion or morality. If you argue that a life before it is born is sacred, in other words, if you're pro-life, mm. you're going to be fighting against the power structure on that school. If you don't believe in same-sex marriage, mm. if you believe in religious liberty, you come to that school, you're going to have young people, I think, being instigated by professors, drown them out, make sure they don't get a chance to talk. Because in the 60s, you had progressives who argued that free speech should reign on college campuses when these progressives were on the outside looking in. But now that they're on the inside and they control the levers of power on colleges and university campuses, they don't want freedom of speech mm. because freedom of speech challenges their control. Mm. And I think that this is exactly why so many Christian parents send their kids unprepared to colleges and universities and they get there and those kids are being brainwashed. Can we reverse the tide of this in America or are we too far gone down the progressive No, I, I think cliff? it can be re I think it can be reversed. However, it is not a short-term project. Mm. It is a long-term project because that's how we that's how we changed in the first place. Mm -hmm. Here's the things we have working for us as Christians, we have the power of the gospel. Amen. I remember when I became a Christian at age uh, 20, I was pro-abortion at the time. The moment I became a Christian, without any discipleship at all, I reversed course. I knew intuitively killing an unborn child was wrong. We mm. have the power of the gospel. We have the ability to train 
our next generation, those we have influence on, I think the churches and Christian organizations should be wholesale uh, teaching as many young people as they can about worldview. And then the third thing we have going for us, this is uh, what I say as, as often as I can, is that reality is a brutal teacher. You look at what has happened in Cuba since 1959 when Fidel Castro took over. You see what is happening in Venezuela. Socialism can do some things well, but eventually it crashes into the rocks of reality. And eventually they're gonna look to those who have answers about how do we reconstruct the system, the political system built on the ideology that made us into the greatest and wealthiest nation in human history. And there had better be some people with the answers. That's why Mm. parents and pastors and churches and religious organizations ought to get busy teaching the not only the scriptures but what our founders believed because what they believed by and large was rooted in the judeo-christian worldview mm. and what you said just reminded me that you know darkness is not an affirmative force right you know nobody goes in their house and say hey let's turn the darkness off we say turn the lights on and when the light is illuminated the darkness scatters and i would add in addition to the recommendations you uh made just now the Progressive Threat to the American Republic, the booklet written by Ed Vitagliano. You need to get it. Go to afastore.net, afastore.net. You can get the booklet, and there's also an accompanying DVD right. presentation that you can get. Get it into the hands of your friends, family, loved ones, into your churches, because we need to turn the light on in our country. Ed Vitagliano, thank you very much. Ma'am, thank you. The booklet, The Progressive Threat to the American Republic, and a DVD by the same title are available for purchase from afastore.net. It's our hope you can use these materials to inform others about this dangerous threat to our nation. You can listen to this program again at afr.net. You'll find it on our podcast page under Special Programs. This has been an American Family Radio special broadcast.